Summer is here, and that means it's time for extra family read-alouds, beach reads, and earning that free pizza from the local library. The Cersei Press is here to help with four new titles. First, we're excited to offer you our first fully illustrated children's book. Learn the Latin alphabet, common verbs associated with speaking, and the Latin names of 24 nouns in ABK Latine. In this beautifully illustrated alphabet book, each letter of the Latin alphabet is paired with an animal that makes the same sound, so even parents with no knowledge of Latin can easily read this book with their children. While your young ones are learning Latin, curl up with a cup of tea and enter King Arthur's court with your older children in Legends of the Round Table. This carefully curated collection of Arthurian legends were chosen for their celebration of chivalry, honor, nobility, and beauty. In addition to the tales, you will find discussion questions for further contemplation. And when you get some time to yourself, contemplate the true, good, and beautiful with Josh Gibbs in his new book, Love What Lasts. In today's world, almost nothing lasts. Books and films that are wildly popular one year are forgotten by the next. Some things do last, though. 200 years later, we are still listening to Beethoven. 1,600 years later, we are still reading Augustine. In Love What Lasts, Joshua Gibbs offers readers a wide-angle view of contemporary culture, explains how we got here, and invites readers to reconsider the role which old books, old music, and old films might play in their lives and the lives of their families. And for those parents and teachers who just can't spend their summer reading without prepping for the fall, the Circe Press is excited to announce a new book, by C. Scott and David V. Hicks. The tyrant Julius Caesar, as told by Plutarch and Shakespeare. The Hicks brothers bring their experience translating and annotating Plutarch in The Statesman and the Lawgivers for this unique look at one of history's most divisive and interesting figures. Starting with their highly readable translation of Plutarch's Life of Caesar and the wealth of insights provided by their thorough annotations, maps, and diagrams. The Hicks then turn their attention to Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. This annotated text of the play is unique comparing Shakespeare's rendition of Caesar's life to Plutarch's, noting his sources, and considering the Elizabethan story in light of its classical origins. Not confined to literature, history, linguistics, or philosophy, this work bridges all these disciplines, making it an exemplary example of the study of humanities. ABK Latine, Love at Last, and Legends of the Roundtable are available for purchase now. The tyrant is pre-order, meaning you can claim yours at a discounted price for a limited time. To get these books and many more Cersei titles, head to CerseiInstitute.org backslash books. Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been reading to read. Uh, I am Brandon LeBlanc, and I am not joined by my normal co-hosts, uh, Andrea and Matt, because they've abandoned me once again. However, we we have a, a Bianco family affair. We have with us Alec Bianco, who was here for Ovid before. And uh, Patty Bianco. So how are you guys doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, we are excited. Y'all are joining us for Herodotus Book One. So, you know, friends of ours at Cersei uh, over at Center for Lit, they have another podcast that they call uh, How to Eat an Elephant, where they go through like one really giant book at a time, a little bit. And uh, this this is a little bit like that. This is uh, Herodotus is more of an elephant of a book. It's, um, so we've decided instead to break it into just go bo- a book at a time. So we'll go through book one now. We'll come back and revisit, you know, with book two a little later on the show after some other things. Um, but we figured that that was a good way for us to do it. And so we are going to dive right in with book one. Herodotus is, you know, often called the father of history, although there were some types of histories before him. This is kind of the big first big one we have in the Western canon. And I've told this story a few times, but I have an undergraduate degree in history and not only didn't read Herodotus in college, but didn't even hear about him in college, which is just like 
tells you the, tells you how over degreed and undereducated I am as a as an American <laughs> American citizen. But I will give us a short. I'll do my best to give us a short narration of what goes on in in book one. We were talking off the air. Um, he likes to digress, and so it's a little tougher than some other narratives. But it is a narrative, so that's kind of nice when it comes to history. Um, it starts off with him announcing himself very much like you get at the uh, the front of uh, some of the epistles in the New Testament, right? That I, Paul, the such and such and such and such, but I, Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Um, and let's just know exactly what he's what he's writing this this for. Um, one that so time won't forget some of these great deeds and uh, important things that have led the world to his his moment in time uh, in in the the kind of Hellenic Greek world that he's in. And also uh, what has led to the, to the, the current state of war. I think this is the Peloponnesian wars. No, I'm going to get these confused now, but uh, what, what, Oh, with the, with the, with the Persians, like what came, what brought them to this point with the Persians. And the nice thing is we kind of get from, from Herodotus, everybody's viewpoint on what brought them here. Um, he is. Uh, he likes to go along and um, say, "Well, so in the the such and such as say this is how it went down: the Greeks, and then the Phoenicians, and then the Egyptians, and the Persians, and kind of just gives us their account, which is I think I'm looking forward to. Um, I knew that a little bit, but this is my first reading of Herodotus. I don't know. Is this is this a first time for either of you, or have y'all have either you read it before? This is my second time. Okay. This is my first time reading All right. Herodotus. <laughs> all right, me too. All right, awesome. And so it's because of all that he's just of this kind of recounting that the stories he's told by the different people groups that we get these. I think we get so many of these um, kind of diversions off in the off the rabbit trails a little bit. But he um, he he says that he uh, starts off saying you know that it started with the when the Phoenicians came and were trading uh, in the Hellas and. Uh, eventually they end up um, uh, taking Io, the, the, the princess uh, captive with them along with some other women and bring her back to Egypt. And then the Greeks come from their side and they take some women captive. There's a lot of taking women captive basically is what, what happens here and, and kind of get this going. And from the Persians point of view, like that's not that big a deal basically um like part four says up to this point it was only rape on both sides um like only stealing of women but that was like oh yeah whatever but when they come and start trying to avenge them then it because that's when it becomes foolish <laughs> for the persons and then it brings us up to uh prim getting involved and then we get um eventually he's going to bring us to to what he really thinks is the is the deal with Croesus, but he first goes through all these different things with uh, the Persians and the and the Greek sides and the Phoenician side. But by six, he's already bringing us to Croesus, and that's where we spend most of the. Or I'm not going to say Croesus, I guess, and that's who we spend most of the time uh, in this first section, um, getting up to the point of of how that why he's important in this whole in this whole war. Um, but he goes through a lot of like. Who Croesus is, who his who his his hereditary um, line, and how they kind of became the the 
leaders of the Greeks in, in Lydia in particular, I think this is a great, 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 great grandfather, basically kills his master and becomes the leader, but only because the master had him, uh, Kenandules had him look upon his naked wife and then she found out. And so um, I find it interesting that even back then, well, we can get into it later, but that they, um, so that's, that is how Diges becomes the leader uh, as, even though he wasn't uh, Greek by birth originally, and Croesus is his his descendant. Uh, and through these through this line, there's a lot of fighting that's going on with other city states, um, the Milesians, um, who they eventually make peace with uh, in, in a treaty, but they get kind of tricked into it, tricking to think that they're stronger than they are um, by Thraspilus, and then they make um they make treaty with with sparta who it took me a little while to figure out that sparta and the sparta and lacedonians were the same i'm not sure i'm not saying that right either but there's gonna be a lot of me mispronouncing greek on this is what y'all need to be understanding at this point um it's just an ad for our new Greek apprenticeship. That's right, right. Yeah, we should all take the Greek apprenticeship so that we don't sound so dumb when we're talking about Herodotus. <laughs> exactly. Um, so he begins to put together this this coalition of Greek city states, um, but the in opposition to the Persians, uh, who who are the rising power uh, that he sees, and. What's really interesting is that as as uh, by the time Croesus is in charge, Lydia has a, has a pretty good standing, and like wise people from all over the area are coming, and they're getting all these great teachers. Um, the word for what would later become Sophist, but and at this point is still considered; these are considered, you know, uh, actual teachers who are coming to teach, not not the Sophists we get kind of portrayed by Plato later that are not really philosophers. Um, but Solon, Solon comes from, from Athens and he's impressed by him and he shows him around all his riches and he wants him to tell him how wonderful he is and says, so who's the most blessed man in all the world? And he, um, he gives him, uh, one answer and I'm, I can't find the guy's name, but, oh, uh, tell us, tell us the Athenian, right? And he's like, okay, okay, fine. Like he gives him why his virtue and all these things. And then he tells him, well, who's second? And then he gives him Cleobus and Bitten and their reason and they were how they were honored. And finally he comes and said he says, he explains to him, I can't say a man is blessed until he's until he's finished his life, till he ends his life, um, you know, in honor. You could have a, tons of riches now and but end your life poorly. So he doesn't really like that. <laughs> tells him, kind of sends him away. And he uh, tries to avoid the death of his own son after a dream, but that goes awry. And then he goes to the to the, to the oracle um, to find out if he should go to war with the Persians. And the answer he gets is, if you go to the war with the Persians, a great dynasty will fall, or a great kingdom will fall. And he takes that to mean, I should go to war with the Persians because I will definitely win. Um, and so we, he spend the rest of the time kind of gearing up for that, making these alliances. Um, 
and there's a lot more in here, you know, because he, like I said, he di- digresses and digresses and we get all these stories about people in the uh, famous Corinthians and other things, but that's where he's, um, that's where he, we kind of leave off. He's gearing up for this fight with the, with the, with the Persians. So we will see um, if he has correctly interpreted the, the Oracle uh, when we get into next week, I guess. So thoughts, anything to add, anything to jump out at you in this first section? I'll just say, um, as an overall view of reading these kinds of histories, um, kind of to your earlier point about not having studied Herodotus as a history major, um, there's a very, I love these histories, Herodotus and Thucydides, um the venerable bead has his history of the the ecclesiastical history of the english people uh which is also written in a very similar style which compared to more modern history books is interesting because it feels like it's a bunch of digressions or stories which i suppose it is but i just i think that's more interesting it's it's sort of like when people talk about their history their family history mm-hmm, mm-hmm. says who you are and you know what's your what's your background we don't say well in 1971 this happened and then right. in 1982 this happened and then you know it, but which is the way a modern history book is sort of written it's about stories it's these collections of stories and fables and myths and i'm sure you've all heard the famous don't let facts get in the way of a good story uh, there's so much myth-making involved that's based on these sort of real truths, uh, but it's our sort of perceptions of them that get transformed over time through being told by different people, um, you know, and as you're receiving them as a child versus as an adult. And I love that these books are written more like that. And it doesn't make them necessarily untrustworthy especially Herodotus, who's known for sort of uh, pruning a lot of the mythological aspects of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the Greek myths. But, you know, it's interesting being on here for the Ovid and now reading this. Yeah, yeah. Very, very different. And yet there's still this sort of myth-making going on. You know, the story of Orion uh, riding the dolphin mm-hmm. uh, to shore or the um, what's that Croesus' son being killed going to hunt the right the huge boar which is a mythological creature in the greek myths so there's definitely some of that myth making there which i think is right to include because that's how they were received right and yet at the same time what's tying herodotus's stories is this narrative talking about the people and and what they accomplished which is fascinating so speaking of what jumped out to me fascinating taking solon's story to to croesus that you mentioned when croesus asks him who's who's the happiest or most blessed man and solon it's interesting because Solon says you can't say who's a happy or blessed until they're dead. But 
I don't actually think that's what he's really saying to Herodotus or to, to Croesus. I do think there's some truth to that. But I wonder if what he's actually saying is because in the stories that he relates, these were virtuous men who mm-hmm. did virtuous things. And it, whether they had wealth or not right. was sort of secondary to the fact that they lived virtuous lives. And yet, Priestess can't, can't see that. And he's focused on his material wealth. And so then the only answer, I think it's very platonic or Socratic, really. And so then at that point, because Croesus cannot elevate his mind to realize that wealth and material goods don't comport with happiness, or don't create happiness, he, someone has to give him an answer, that the only answer that can make sense to him, which is, well, you can't know until you're dead. Right. And he shifts from virtue in that last part to this. Uh, my, even when he's distinguishing, he doesn't, it's not necessarily wealth. He's just someone who's lucky, who's got good fortune. Right. So he goes from being talking about virtuous men to, well, you might have good luck now, but you, if you're luck right now, you can say the guy's lucky. And when, if he dies and he still is in a good state, then he's blessed. Right. But right now, all you can say about someone who's living is that they're lucky. So he switches it to fortune versus virtue when when Chris can't hear it. Yeah. Interesting. Patty, you said this is your first time through. So like I know for me it was like, okay, I got first of all, I gotta get used to this style of how he's telling stories and this and thinking about this as a history. So what what are your first impressions? Well, I appreciate you saying that you're gonna mispronounce the names because that's <laughs> <laughs> I was like I don't know how to pronounce these names. <laughs> I might need to hear someone read it to me. Um, but it, I think I've found that the virtue aspect, I was surprised in the story, even in the first story about the king of, um, you know, I guess it's not necessarily his wealth, but in a way his wife, right, that he loved her so much, but mm. he still wanted to share. It wasn't necessarily it was still a material thing that he wanted everybody to know. And so he convinces Gaijis to, to do that. But it's, it says that that was against their, I can't remember the exact word, but it wasn't decent, right. Even for the males to be seen naked or the, or the women. And so this was a terrible thing that they had done. Um, I think when I, always thought about barbarians. I don't know much about the barbarians or the Persians and Spartans, but I had this impression that they didn't have those type of virtues. And so that was enlightening to me to, to see that and to learn more about it. Yeah. I think we're reading from, I think we're going to have the same translations, but I thought that was that's the same thing that's underlined in blue to me with the, the response of the, of Gyges when he says, don't ask me to do this. Um, I have the same thoughts. Like, I'm used to thinking of, well, you know, among the Greeks and the other pagans of the ancient world, like nudity is not a big deal and overt sexuality and all these, you know, because, and maybe because those were things that were happening like in the temples, you know, so we just think it's like acceptable in all forms. But there's, there's, it's not, right? At least according to this, like, there's this kind of no, that's, only a husband should see the wife. Um, um, 
maybe at least in, in in the in the marital context there's some there's more there's more modesty than we might have we might have imagined so Alec, when you were talking about how this is more how we tell stories, um, or when someone asks you about yourself, I was, I kept thinking about, yeah, this is like having a conversation with like one of my parents or grandparents. And I'll ask a question about like, wait, so it was Papa, when was he a, you know, police officer in New Orleans? And then, and they're like, well, okay. So then they start telling me the whole story of my grandfather. Right. And like all this other information and all these divergences and, you know, um, the ones about my great grandfather, my favorites. My my, my mom used to tell because I mean, I knew him as a kid, and then and then at his funeral, his brother, who was a little bit younger, like just telling us all these stories about the two of them in New Orleans and like the turn turn of the last century is like great, but like nothing but rabbit trails, right? Um, uh, but it's the best stuff, and like that's how it feels. Like you're like, okay, well, I can't tell you that without telling you this. Like I can't tell you, you know, that part without explaining how they got how we got here and so um we get all these background stories um i hadn't thought that much uh, alec about how he he um he downplays the uh some of the mythological elements that we get from other greek sources um but i did notice with uh well he calls him alexander but paris that there's none of the mention of like the the thing with the goddesses and why he was awarded hell given hell. It was just like, you know, he just decided it would be good to go, good to go get Helen. Like, you know, what I mean, like that was kind of like, yeah, he wanted uh, to go take a wife from somewhere else too. Um, and like the, this was just kind of what was going on. People were going and stealing women from each other. Um, and so that was interesting. But like you said, we get these other ones, even in the story of the two brothers that Solon gives, like, they do this kind of Herculean feat of hauling the chariot or whatever, 45 stades or, you know, it's this kind of um, larger than life. And then they die, right? Like it's kind of like the, uh, and so it's this heroic de- death in a way. Um, so he does give us that kind of stuff. It is that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's interesting. That's interesting. But Alec, you you know more about what's coming, but I'm I only know bits and pieces of this from when I hear people talk about it. So I'm I'm curious to see what he's setting us up for in this first section. Um, yeah, I should say this is probably more like my first reading because I do not remember <laughs> it very well. Um, and like you said, there's so many digressions that it's really about. Well, going back to the stories. I, I one time I had uh, lunch with uh, Christopher Nelson, who was the longest serving president at St. John's College. And I remember asking him about his life. I remember asking about his life. I don't remember anything he said except right. for the stories that he told. But all of the factual type stuff, I don't remember. But one story he told me was that he and his brother used to reenact the Battle of Troy in the Iliad in their living room growing up because their father would read the Iliad to them. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's what stuck with me and what a beautiful story, but that's kind of how these stories are. You know, when they're, when you tell them as these sort of fables or myths, they become more deeply entrenched in 
who we are. Um, that's just poetic knowledge. Yeah. Your dad, your dad used somebody like that in an illustra- as an illustration in a talk he gave a couple years ago where the person, like they didn't, dad didn't even read them the stories. He just like told him the stories of Troy and the, you know, like, cause the dad knew them. And so the kid thought like his dad made these stories up. Like they were like just their stories and then he would act them out. And, and then he got like really upset when he went to school and they had like read like someone else took your stories and wrote them down, you know, and when he was a kid and then he's like, no. And so it was like this disillusionment that they had just been their stories. Um, but yeah, like that's, that's, that's how we got so much of what we know, like of our story in human history. Right. I mean, that's how, uh, whether you're talking about the myths and the fables or you're talking about the, the early church, everything was passed primarily through oral telling, right. Of uh, the accounts of Christ. And so it's not, it's so much a part of the, the threads of our history um, and our culture that we've kind of divorced ourselves from because right. Everything's in print. We can get anything in print easily. Now we can get to get it on our computer digitally. Um, that, it's nice to kind of go back to this kind of storytelling tradition where it's like, okay, let's, 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 un, let's unpack all of this. And so, um, and then I like that. He's like, that's what they say, but these guys say this, and I'm going to tell you the part that I know for sure. Like he, at one point he's like, I'm gonna tell you the part I know for sure. That's what I was going to say. I, I thought it was interesting how you started it, that he was, you know, may these great and wonderful deeds not go unsung, mm. right? There, there has to be someone there to tell them, but he's going to tell probably what's most memorable to him. So to see that his account of these, um, it's kind of interesting to see his side. So then I think on, um, I don't know if we have the same pages, but when he goes into the story, he says, I myself have no, it, intention of affirming that these events occurred thus or otherwise (laughs) (laughs) right little disclaimer there i'm just i'm just telling the stories here they may have happened they may not have happened maybe that's to the to your point alec of kind of downplaying the the myths but it is interesting to see what stands out to him the connections of well these we stole all these women right and Paris wanted to uh, just abduct someone, and it was no big deal. You know why? Right. Why are the why are they making such a big deal about it? Yeah, this is the Persians say it is just it is the work of unjust men we think to carry off women at all. But once they've been carried off, to take seriously the avenging of them is the part of fools, as it is the part of sensible men to pay no heed to the matter. Clearly, the women would not have been carried off had they had no mind had they had no mind to be. <laughs> And we hear that argument today, right? When we yeah. read the Iliad, like, well, Helen must have been compliant in it. I mean, <laughs> right. I like to like that's the Persian view because Persian women would never be carried off if they don't want to be, right? You know, or so I don't know, like some kind of like flex or brag by the Persians, but the Greeks sure see it quite differently, apparently. So, yeah, and he. But yeah, the, the part you read that was he. The next thing he says, "I myself know began unjust acts against the Greeks." Like I'm going to set my mark upon that thing that I know, um, because he is Greek, right? And so he 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 can he gets more close to the account of what things were done to those peoples, right? His people, 
because he's there. So it is interesting to see how he does that. But but maybe more than some modern historians, he's 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 really more honest about like, look, this is the account given. I'm reporting it. And I can tell you there's different accounts from different people. And you know, make of it what you will. Whereas a modern historian and certainly a modern reporter is going to tell you which thing is more often is telling you which thing is whose account's true, right? Or trying to persuade you. So that is pretty interesting. Um, you well, mentioned, like, go ahead. He said that human prosperity never remains constant. So I think that goes back to what Alec was talking about with, with Solon and, and the questions there that we see these Kings and the, the wealth they have and then the wars and everything that's going on and, and how it can change very quickly for them or well, at least the theme I see is that they misunderstand the oracle. <laughs> they interpret what they want to interpret. Yeah. And he seems comfortable with the idea that the oracle does know things and can tell you things. Um, but also, uh, Croesus tests multiple oracles, right? And only two does he find to be true oracles um, in his case. And so... Um, Herodotus seems comfortable with that, that there are people who know things that are kind of uh, supernatural knowledge, but which is probably another reason modern historians are uncomfortable with it, right? And the idea is that you're getting punished because you destroyed a, a pal- palace of Athena and those kind of things. So I do like that line that you bring up, though, Alec, of he's he's taking some of the he's taking some of the um grandioseness off of the myths and the gods and things like that but not ignoring it completely right and like there's this fine line of like yeah you destroy the temple and that's why things aren't going well for you you need to rebuild the temple which is kind of in line with the you've angered the gods you need to appease the gods kind of mythology um but at the same time someone else gets that same information and just uses it in a very human Machiavellian way to trick them into a treaty. You're like, oh, I know they've got to appease the gods and they have to build this temple. So he's going to come begging to build this temple in our city. And so I'm going to make it look like we're having a great time and we're fine so that I get good, I get good terms on the deal. Right. Like it's kind of like, like a negotiation trick. And so it's an interesting. Um, it's a fine, it's a, it's an interesting line he's drawing for us between kind of the more, you know, well-known mythology version of mythological version of, of the ancient Greeks. And then this kind of very practical, uh, state statecraft kind of stuff. Yeah. He's not atheistic, um, in, in this recounting of these stories. I was just thinking how interesting it would be if somebody were to write a history of America today and (laughs) in England and to say that King George had a terrible dream that his armies would be, you know, destroyed and, you know, the colonialists would overtake if they were to tell the history that way. And then his, you know, dream came true and the Oracle proved it right, you know, but we don't tell stories like that. It's completely atheistic in that sense. We don't, we don't account for those sorts of things. 
but Herodotus doesn't seem to be shy when it comes to, you know, he recounts um, Croesus's dream and says it mm-hmm. was fulfilled. And his son does die uh, hunting after the boar. Right. And it's amazing to, I think it helps us modern readers to read stories like Herodotus, Thucydides, Plutarch, and others from the past who are willing to tell stories these ways. Um, and like I think you said early, Brandon, um, about the early church, like when you read the hagiography and the lives of the saints or the history of the early church, there's a much more willingness to, there's a sense of here's the literal things that happened, but not suggesting that God doesn't play a role right. in these things happening. So I don't know. I might be drifting into slightly uh, heterodox territory here, <laughs> but there's a sort of interesting, even the pagans recognized that the gods were real or that God is real and that things happen. And then Christians, you know, like I said before, uh, Bede tells his history of the English people very similarly. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, I saw someone post this like a meme kind of thing uh, a week or so ago, and it was like, um, it was like a Celtic looking cross or something in some woods somewhere, and it was like Ragnarok already happened, right? So it's like, yeah, like the 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 old gods were destroyed. That's when when Christ came, the old gods were destroyed, so Ragnarok already happened, and I was like, oh, that's funny, and but it's exactly what you're talking about, right? It's not, it's not, uh, it's acknowledging that yeah there were these you know it's not uh, it's not discrediting the idea of their their gods being <laughs> eventually being destroyed um it's saying yeah they weren't they were maybe you know from from the christian's perspective they're their demons not gods and that it did happen that was right that was a true prophecy <laughs> that was going to happen um and so it's it's you brought up uh alec uh, plutarch and i I thought about it when they got to Lycurgus because, you know, that's one of the wives that's in, in Plutarch. And, um, he's, it's actually in the, one of the ones that we've published the lawgiver. She's one of the two lives. Um, and in a similar way, you know, he's writing biography, so it's not quite the same type of narrative where it sprawls as much, but Plutarch's similar. He doesn't, he account, he gives the accounts of what they say happened. And, um, we can either choose to discredit and say, well, when they go, when they're involving with these, you know, religious spiritual things, it's just um, nothing's actually happening. They're just doing it because they think something's happening, and then what happens happens because of human actions only. Um, or we can say, well, they took it seriously, and it did happen the way the oracle said. So maybe something was going on that we can't totally explain. Um, doesn't mean the Oracle was, you know, that the source of that information was good, like God, and it doesn't mean, you know, but it doesn't also mean that it wasn't, it was just pretended nothing was happening, you know, and it's good for us to, I think, question that a little bit, um, question our modern sensibilities about that a little bit. That's what I thought was interesting about the story with Croesus and um, I think it was Adaroxes, the line from Midas, the guy who mm-hmm. came or um, because he wanted to be free 
from his blood guilt. He had accidentally killed his brother. And there was this prophecy, right, that his son was going to die. And and Croesus is doing everything he can to keep that from happening, almost like uh, the fairy tale of is that Sleeping Beauty where, you know, you get rid of all the um, oh, spinning yeah, yeah. wheels. So she the finger. <laughs> right. And so he's like, you know, no, no iron, anything, no spears, no nothing. You can't even hunt. And, but yet when, when he does something like his own actions cause it to, to happen, instead of staying angry, of course he was angry that this guy that he'd just forgiven fulfilled the prophecy of his son dying. But he he understood that there was something greater there than himself. Instead of saying staying bitter and angry, I can't remember exact words, but he's like, you know, this this was foretold to me. This is how it was supposed to happen. And I I don't know that we would understand things that way. This <laughs> in the modern right. time, right? Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I think we struggle, uh, especially as modern Christians, we struggle with it um, because it's it's present in our own. Well, it's present in our own scripture, but certainly in our own, and then and then beyond that, in our own history of of, of the church, going back from the Old Testament forward, these same things. Um, and so, for some for some reason, we're kind of comfortable with it there in scripture, but not so comfortable with it. <laughs> beyond the the pages of scripture any, any later into history um and so it's a good reminder that this is how the whole this is how most of the world through most of human history has understood the world that this is that there it's most of the world has not been gnostic right or, or not been the, 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 there's the spiritual and the physical are not easily separated um i found it interesting that that thing you just mentioned um with the blood guilt and everything, there's a version of that that exists in the Old Testament law too, right? There's a there's similar situations set up. This is this was the common practice among cultures in the Near East that you could you could go into exile and receive kind of forgiveness for really heinous crimes um, through certain practices, uh, and so, but all of those were. In the, in the Old Testament, too, were tied to a religion and a faith that, that outlined the rules for that. Um, so it's, this is, it's always, we, we talked about this a little bit in the last book we were doing, um, which was Gilgamesh. Um, to see, like, that one has kind of been outside of the tradition because it was lost for so long, but there's so much in it that kind of tells you about the world that the Israelites were in the surrounding people groups and how much connection and i get a lot of that same thing here like this was the world that the that the israelites and then the church kind of were formed in the nature of israel and then the church were formed in so either of y'all have a favorite digression in this first section i think you should read this just for the story of the dolphin <laughs> it's amazing it was like this weird combination of of uh like Jonah and Joseph, right? Like he's mm-hmm. cast aside, cast aside, and then comes out from like, "Ha ha! I'm here! I'm alive!" Like <laughs> the best. But yeah, he's totally fine back in Italy. Don't worry about it. 
who's walking out from behind the curtain. Yeah, it's like literally a sitcom moment. <laughs> it's just it's too good. I think I'd read that twice. I'm like, here's what? A dolphin? <laughs> yeah. That is not a big animal to ride on. I love to this. I, I've spoken with people before growing up who've said that when they, they told me that when they're growing up as a Christian, there's this sort of, I don't know, insularity, insulation that happens when reading the scriptures versus connecting it to the history at large. And so it's interesting to talk about here or read here, seeing Herodotus talk about, you know, so-and-so attacked the Ephesians and so-and-so trusted the Corinthians, which outside of anywhere else, you would never even know who those people are, except for in scripture, except in scripture, they're just the people that Paul was yelling at uh, (laughs) for their sins. And so to hear, you know, like these are actually a group of people who've existed for, you know, 3000 years or however long, who eventually became Christians to whom St. Paul spoke, but kind of thinking about the fact that, you know, a thousand years before that, 2000 years, however long, there are these kings and tribes fighting each other and trusting one shipbuilding over another and you know like there's their people they're actual groups of people that have lived for a long time uh and this is a long line of connected human history and it's pretty pretty special and amazing to to read that however much you want to trust the stories or not there's truth to the fact that they existed and things were happening and yeah yeah one of my favorite um, if I you were saying something, I can't remember if you said favorite myth or what, but <laughs> this line was funny to me that it was when Croesus was consulting the oracle for a third time when he was testing him. And he says, but uh, the Pythia answered, but whenever a mule becomes king of the Medes, then tender-footed Lydian by the pebbled river Hermes or flee by the pebbled river Hermes and do not delay nor feel shame at being a coward. And it says that he was excited about this. He was confident that a man would always rule the Medes, never a mule. (laughs) And therefore assumed he and his descendants would rule forever. So. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a good feeling for what's happening with what's coming up for Christmas. Let's just put it that way. I feel like, um, like, well, I mean, Herata's audience may have already known what happens to him, but he's certainly setting us up for it. He thinks, he thinks. And so I'm really curious. I am curious about that part, like who, what the, what the mule on the throne is going to be. Is it an actual mule or is it talking about someone who's really stubborn? Yeah. Well, like you talked about with the scriptures, you know, you have Balaam and, you know, there's mm. so many, I saw so many different echoes to scriptures, um, maybe because it's that same time period, but there's many stories that I could compare as well. Yeah. Um, 
I agree. And then, well, and then certainly you start reading it and it's the, like Alec was talking about it, you get the people groups and places that we know mostly from scripture, maybe a few other ancient sources, you know, um, but you combine those with some of the th elements that feel like they connect well with scripture. It certainly jumps out a lot. I meant to point this out at the beginning for the audience who may be new to it, like Patty and I are, that, uh, and I'll try to get better about doing this as we talk about things, but the books are broken up. Uh, there's kind of a standard numbering inside the books. And so I don't know when that first started, but I checked to make sure and I'm 99.99% sure that it's standard across all translations <laughs> um, into sections, numbered sections in each book. And so this week we were reading section book one, section one through 72. And sometimes they're written that way, like section 72, but sometimes it's written like book one. So it'd be 1.72 is, is book one, section 72. Um, and so that's where we read this week. And so it will give us an opportunity to kind of, we can kind of reference those uh, for people since we may not be on the same page in different translations and that kind of stuff, but that should help us stay together on the stories. Um, and I did not, since I've never read the book, I did not make these, make these section breaks uh, for our reading based on anything other than dividing those numbers by three. So um so I apologize if we end in weird places. Last time, Matt and and Andrea accused me of purposely picking things that left us on a cliffhanger and in in Gilgamesh, but I'm just not that good uh, or well read to be able to do that. So uh, apologies if we end in weird places. Yeah, I uh, I too saw a lot of things that, like I mentioned, I thought about Joseph when I when I read the story about Arion and um, and. Uh, and then even listening to Solon, uh, I couldn't help but I was thinking of Paul, like finishing the race well, like all those kind of things that Paul talks about. Um, um, and even just you don't know till till the end of someone's life where they've where they've ended. So um, but like you were talking about, Alec, that's that if you're really reading closely, that's tied to living a virtuous life, right? If you're living a virtuous life, you should end well. So, uh, but you have to keep doing it. Yeah, and I wonder if Herodotus puts that story of Solon, or their conversation, Solon increases the story um, so early on because he wants us to think about that as we're re you know reading about these people's lives. Mm. Are they happy? Yeah, or blessed, however your translation says. Um, and asking yourself that, I think, as you read, um, will be kind of an interesting question to keep in mind as we move forward through the readings. And I don't know. I don't. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm guessing that a lot of these people will have lived terrible lives <laughs> and will die tragic ends. <laughs> Uh, and that that's where most of the stories that Herodotus didn't tell. Um, but, and like you said, I don't think Croesus is going to end well um, in his fight against the Persians. But, you know, I, I love that. <laughs> they have not tasted luxury. So he says, oh, oh man, 
I just, Herodotus's little note. Croesus did not take this advice, though Sundanus was right. The Persians before their conquest of Lydia had no luxuries of any kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a little little commentator's note there. Uh, <laughs> they were little... le- they wear leather and leather <laughs> like they, you know they're not comfortable people. They don't even have figs for dessert. That's right. <laughs> what kind of savages are these? No figs. Yeah. So, anyways, it'll be interesting to to read for as we move forward in the readings. But yeah, I do think that question that Croesus asked Solon is the one that Herodotus wants us to ask about each of these people. Are yeah. they happy? Are they have? Did they lead happy lives? Did they lead a blessed life? Um, and I'm going to guess the answer is maybe no. But who knows? Yeah. Orion, he seemed to have a happy life. And he, he is giving us, murder. he does pretty explicitly give us Croesus as his, like, this is my starting point, right? The Phoenicians say this, the Persians say that, some other Greeks say this, but I can tell you that this is where this conflict really starts between the Persians and the Greeks. And then he gives us a lot more detail about that backstory, right? Like, the other ones, they gave maybe a section, but like this is, this is what, like 30, 40 sections giving us all of Chris's backstory, his family backstory, and then his own story to lead us, leading us up to what I'm assuming we'll see next week is the, the con, the actual battle between him and him and the Persians. Um, so I think you maybe might be onto something that he's kind of giving us this as his prototype to begin with. Like this is the beginning. And we're going to see a lot of other guys and we'll see who can live virtuously and who doesn't. Patty, any other biblical allusions you wanted to, to mention? You you brought that up. I didn't know if you had a couple others in mind. Those are always fun to, to see. Yeah, I I don't know that I necessarily wrote them down. So I <laughs> remember them now. Sorry, I'm, I'm putting really you on the spot. Of- did not prepare Patty for this question at all. Well, I think there was one, although, albeit, I don't know why that I went to there, but um, what's his name? The Pisistris? Harry, um, like I said, I can't pronounce the names. Anyway, Sounds he, good to he me. was the son of, um, was it Harry? Heraclides, no. Hippocrates, Hippocrates, however you say it. Anyway, he's the one that becomes the the tyrant. And he makes this deal, right? There's going to be war. I'm going to make a deal. I'm going to take your wife or this lady to be my wife. And, but he'd already had children. And Mm. it says that her people were under a curse. So he did not want the wife to have to bear his children and so he was somehow indecent it doesn't really describe how but he had relations with her in an indecent way um so that makes me think of of the in the bible i can't remember the guy's name but the one who took the wife as um law suggested right but then he spilled his seed and didn't fulfill that part of it um so that was one of the connections I saw. That's a good one. I didn't think about that. I did like the vague way in which in which um, 
Haratas put that, like he lay with her, but not in the usual way. Like that was <laughs> and angered her father. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Um huh. and again, it's interesting that these things would have been an offense across these kind of cultures, right? It's there's some specific commands by God in the Old Testament that that guy's violating, but, or at least violating the spirit of, um, but it's still even across culture, uh, you know, into the pagan cultures that some of these same things are considered offensive to do and wrong to do. As you were talking, I was thinking about um, Gyges and I forgot the wife's name. It's like an inversion of, uh, of Potiphar's wife and like, yeah like um but both guys end up with a lot of power you know out of the out of the situation so it's pretty wild stuff it makes it seem like he didn't have a choice like he says he won him over and so he did it but i wonder if you know if that's necessarily true like could he like close (laughs) right right (laughs) he didn't have to look but then the wife even gives him this like ultimate of okay kill your master and become king or die yeah he's like oh, i'll live one of so, you you <laughs> both yeah you both sinned one of you's got to die <laughs> right huh interesting well, could he in that case of Potiphar, like joseph could he have said Either I'm not going to do it at all, or I'm going to go ahead and and die, right? Because I right. sinned. Yeah. This wasn't cool. instead of becoming king. But then the oracle confirms his king kingness, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, so maybe it was, it was meant to be that way. Yeah, the oracles are interesting. Um, they're uh, they're in here a lot so far already you know i'm familiar you get them a little bit in some other in some other um myth stories epics uh but they're they've been consulted multiple times in this first section and then given a lot of treasure you know by crosses and others um so i'm that's interesting to me i wonder if there's a lot more of that in Herodotus. Than than yeah, some of the other sources. Description. They go into some of the things that he gave to mm-hmm. the oracles, like the bronze bowls and the one getting stolen, and going into that detail of you know how important this this bowl was. But I think it in the on my book it shows a picture of it and a description said it was like five feet tall. So. It, must have been very valuable Mm -hmm. you know some of these gifts that they were giving um yeah so i'm curious too being first time reading through see what (laughs) see what happens yeah it's interesting there's like one guy like he's like the only guy who knows how to weld iron i'm like like, that's this this, like crazy specific skill um because i guess they're not really in the iron age so that would have been like dark arts right um in fact it says um, it? something about it being evil right 
Yeah, that's what I was just remembering. Like he made a, a comment that um, almost like it was a plague on humanity. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Section 68. Um, oh, it's when he's trying to find the bones of Orestes and he meets this, this smith and he says, the iron being welded on iron was the evil laid upon evil. The image being that it was to man's mischief that iron was invented. Like, okay. Pacino. Maybe we, maybe there's something to that. But by far my favorite line so far in the first section is in section 61. We're well into the thing with multiple digressions at this point. And he says, uh, the judgment of Hippias prevailed that they should win back the sovereignty and thereupon gather donations from whatever cities owed them any obligation. Though there were many who furnished large sums, the Thebans exceeded all in their giving of money. Afterwards, not to make a long story of it, there wasn't, a, like, that's my favorite part. Like, all of a sudden, he doesn't want to get make a long story. Like, to sum up, yeah, that just made me laugh when I got to it. So, it's all one long story. That's right. <laughs> well, we've been going for about an hour uh, on this first section. I think we got covered some good ground. Thank you guys uh, for being here this week. Um, next week we are covering. Let me let the audience know. So, let me remind myself what we're covering. Um, seventy-three through one forty-four of book one. So now that you know what those numbered sections how they work, that should be pretty easy to get through. I have no idea where it ends because, like I said, I haven't read it yet. Um, but that's what we're doing next week. So for all you reading along at home. All right. Yeah, thank Thanks for having me on the podcast first time. Yeah. To read Herodic Welcome for the first time. That's that's what this podcast is here for, for us to all read things we're supposed to have read and haven't. So there you go. Um, that's why, I, you know, it's making me read all the things I want, you know, I want to read. So glad you're here. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, thank you all for pulling the book down from the shelf and cracking it open with us and joining us for this episode of Overdue Classics. Uh, we hope you'll join us next week when we discuss uh, the next section of book one of Histories by Herodotus. Um, you can send your questions or comments to podcast at circeinstitute.org. You can also join us at uh, circle.circe.so to join in the conversation there. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Circe Podcast Network. 